0: Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren och historikern Peter Frankopan i samtal med Björn Viman Dagens Nyheter. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus vid Särgelstorg. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Så, eh, välkommen Jag oh, tycker om regnet. Uh, det var Karin som sa det finns inga dåliga väder, bara dåliga kläder. Ah. Ja, ni hör själva. <laughs> I skulle länge kunna take this talk in Swedish, but I suggest we we pass over to English. Because not, so. not 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 because you speak Swedish worse, but but you speak English faster. <laughs> and we have a lot of ground to cover tonight. We're gonna run through history in well like 60 minutes here, <laughs> and not only history as we know it but that's that's the important thing with with this book Uh, Ingmar mentioned the title Sidenvägarna Silk Roads but he didn't mention the subtitle uh, which is a new history of the world so we're not only going to run through history in 60 minutes but a new history of the world yeah will we make that You'll get good value for money. Okay. That I promise. Let's hope so. <laughs> uh, so ho- who are you to make such a claim as to write a new history of the world? Well, it's a very good question. Um, quite aggressive. Um,
1: well, I suppose if, if uh, a professor of global history at Oxford University can't do it, who can? You know, I think well, one of the problems when we... I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. and um, so, yeah. you know, when, we, when, we, when we conceptualize the past, we, we break... We break the past into blocks. You know, we, we make the Middle Ages or the First World War, or we create this idea of time that is distinct. And, of course, as scholars, what we have to do, and writers, we have to do, we have to try and and take manageable um, stories and, and then... Tell them. And uh, what I try to do is to try to, to, to say, well, there's, the, there's a big picture as well that we need to, to look at. And um, so starting from two and a half thousand years ago, I suppose what I want to try and do is to say, where, where is the action? Where, is, where, where, where should you be standing to understand the history of the world? You know, when, when I was a boy, I learnt about the ancient Greece, right? You did that too, and ancient Rome. Then there's a long gap until the Vikings. Then there's another long gap. We get Henry VIII, you have Gustav Asa. Uh, then there's another sort of you know, a gap where people have some sort of idea what's going on, but then we get to Napoleon and Bernadotte and then the First and the Second World War and then it all becomes familiar again. It's a sort of, we all have that same arc. So if I said, well, if, where, if you were trying to know what's most important in the year 500 in the world, where should you be standing? What's going on? Those gaps. If you want to know what's important in the year 1000, much so I love being in Stockholm and, um, and Scandinavia was very important at that time, um, you know, this wasn't a place where great scholars were working. I mean, there were some clever people, but the best scholars in the world 1000 years ago were in, in Balkh in Afghanistan or in Herat. And It sounds totally improbable and impossible today, but in Damascus, Baghdad, Samarkand... Nishapur and so on. And when you start to say, let's see history by following what is important and when, Europe only becomes part of that story, really for global history importantly, around about the year fifteen or sixteen hundred. And for the last three hundred years, four hundred years, for sure, Europe has been the dominant power in the world. But it wasn't always like that. And we can't and, and in fact Europe's rise to power was directly connected to this network. It's called the Seed and Wegener, Ceder Wegener the, the, the Silk Roads. Like all labels, it's, it's slightly clumsy because it's not just silk that's traded. There are lots of goods, lots of ideas, lots of things that, one could, that, that it could have been named by a German geographer 150 years ago or so. Um, but when you start to, to strip back and say, I'm not going to take a political view about what's important or not, just where is power, where is money, where is faith, where is exchange? Where are ideas? Where is that sort of center of power? Like today, you know, obviously, whether you like Trump, which maybe some of you do, um, you know, Washington is important. What happens in the United States is important. And trying to see where have these global centers of power been and how have they been lost? Because we, we, we don't think about the past in this joined up way.
0: There's a beautiful preface to the book where you describe when you, as a child, got a sort of basic inspiration to this book, when you were looking at a map. Yes. Can't you tell us about this story? Well,
1: I love, I love maps. Every time I get on an aeroplane this morning, I came over from, uh, from England. The first thing I do, and I fly a lot, so I love I mean, that shows how much I love maps. Every I take the, um, uh, the, the magazine and I turn to the page which has the maps and I look at the flight plans. And it's always interesting, you know, the the British Airways, places that British Airways flies, is different to the places that SAS fly. Uh, It's different to the places that uh, uh, Air Astana fly in the Kazakh national airline. But each of these maps puts that country in the middle, right? All of us, when you think of the world, Sweden is in the middle for you. Stockholm is the center of the world. For me, well, at the moment, I don't really know because I move so much. But, but this conceptualization of what's important, and when, when I was a boy, I had a map on my bed, bed, bedroom wall that I used to love um, staring at when I went to, when, before I fell asleep. I'm, slightly, I'm one of those slightly geeky. I love lists, I love maps, I love names, I love retaining information. All of us ha- do this about something. For some, it might be David Bowie albums. Some it might be the scores of Hamad. you have Hamad, aren't you? Yes. You're as a matter of fact, yeah, I am. Yeah. Um, um, you know, you, we all ha- we all have our, our things. Or it's maybe it's recipes. Maybe it's you know the, your children's friends at school. Whatever it is, we all collect information. And I used to love memorising these place names and so on. And they all looked so exotic. They still look exotic. Has anybody been to Tashkent? You have okay, Tashkent, a few Samarkand, all of you have been there too. How about Almaty? Poor Almaty. Okay, uh, Baku, Nishapur, Isfahan. You know these one. Wa- okay, you're well travelled. Okay, I'm in trouble. <laughs> D- don't. Okay. These guys, just uh, they know what they're doing. <laughs> they're, <laughs> yeah. They've come with. Okay. <laughs> uh, these places, they sound incredibly exotic. They feel very exotic, and they, they are. You know, they're they're amazing places, right? Uh, they're fantastic places. Um, but they never got mentioned when I was at school. I would, I would come back from school every day and I would learn about Beethoven or Mozart, I'd learn about uh, Immanuel Kant, or I'd learn about Puccini, or I'd learn about Sartre, or um, every now and again we'd have a bit of Strindberg and a bit of Ibsen. But you know what I learned about in all of my lessons in history, geography, and so on, was always about Europe. Uh, I never heard the word Nishapur in my school days. I never heard about China um, i never heard about Iran, nothing, and, and yet every time I switched on the news, I could see SS-20 missiles being deployed into eastern Germany. I, I, every Friday at my school, I had a desk, it was a bit lower than this one, but it was made out of the same kind of material. On a Friday at two o'clock, we had to, they pressed, the, the bell went off, we had to hide under the desk, because somehow that would have protected us with a nuclear strike, and uh, I, so I grew up watching the news. It was about the Soviet Union and then going into Afghanistan in 1979. It was about revolution in Iran, also 1979, where I lived about half a mile from the Iranian embassy with the window blown open by the SAS. I, I was a child of the Cold War, so I, I, I saw the Khmer Rouge on the news every night uh, committing genocide. I saw people fleeing from Vietnam. And all these parts of the world... I never heard anything about at school, never learnt about them at all. And it seemed to me that that was both quite dangerous, but also uh, quite exciting to learn about places. I realised that history was very political and that I didn't understand why I wasn't being told about these countries. So I wanted to know first, what was important in these other parts of the world? And second, how did we fit into that? How was history being told so that their stories were ignored? And I assumed... That they were ignored because they were not interesting and not important, and it turns out that that 's not not the case mm.
0: uh, as Ingmar said here earlier i I totally agree with what you said ingmar it 's a it 's a beautiful book and it's it 's enlightening it 's elegantly written uh, i 'm not a scholar myself, but I figure it 's scholarly impressive as well <laughs> so uh, <laughs> uh, what what struck me most. I think you have all got the basic idea of what Peter's project here to, to like give the world history a new f- ge- geographical focus, which you have succeeded with as well. I'm an opera fan, you know, but so what struck me most was how history gives, opens itself to, to, um, to leitmotifs. Mm. Things like in a Wagner opera, where, where a string of, 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 of notes, R- keep repeating themselves, yeah, in the same pattern. Uh, well, we're human beings, yeah, and we're not so
1: very different. Uh, whether we're in Stockholm or Aleppo or Beijing, uh, we're human beings, so we're not so very different to our ancestors. We people fight. About the same kinds of things, people are drawn to betray their neighbours and inform on them in, in France in the 1940s in the Second World War, uh, in the same way that people were, were careful of their positions in the Cultural Revolution. Or so we, we, we are. These big themes you'd expect them. Just what you, what you said. I'm not trying to give a different, different, different geographic focus because you can look at a bo- books of, uh, You can look at a book of photographs that can give you a different geographic focus. Uh, I'm giving. I'm trying to do something much more important, or much more um, fundamental than that, because it's not. Here's a different perspective. It's that this is where everything has always happened, along the Sindh-Vegetar. You know, we just have this fake view of the past. You know, so all of our global religions, all of them, are from. Apart from Jedi, okay, which okay, that's new. They're all from Asia. You know, because you've got a cathedral here in, in, in Stockholm, and we have you know, bishops and priests and so on, but Christianity is not a European religion. You know, we've commandeered it. There's a pope, there's a archbishops, there's a whole structure of the church, and then Europeans export Christianity all over the world. You know, the Portuguese arrive in India, and they say, oh, by the way, we've got this great news for you. It's about Jesus Christ. And They go, yeah, no, I know. And they go, no, Jesus Christ, and we've got this great, wonderful message of uh, evangelism. And they go, you yeah, know, we know, come and look over here. We've got the church that's been here since St. Thomas arrived, you know, or, or someone similar to St. Thomas, at least, in the first century AD. Not only is Christianity born in Asia, it spreads in Asia much faster than it does in Europe. So you find bishops and archbishops all over what's now Iraq, in Basra, Mosul, all over um all over Iran, Gundershapur, and so on. You find bishops in in Samarkand. You find an archbishop in Kashgar. Uh, before you find an archbishop in um, in Canterbury, and 600 years before you find the first bishop in Sweden. But we believe that Christianity is a European thing, right? There's one of my favourite stories about Christianity. There's a, there's a, the Senate in Texas a few years ago. We're talking about whether children should have bilingual um education in english and in spanish because there's such a big hispanic population in texas and one of the texas republican senate he just happened to be republican i'm not taking sides. stood up but he's one of those sort of you know men who like eating like they, a lot of them do in texas they eat a lot of meat and like they do in texas where it's quite hot and got and, and you're very angry it's a, Bulging with the veins popping out, and he pointing his finger said, If the English language was good enough for our Lord Jesus Christ, it should be good enough <laughs> for the inhabitants of the state of Texas. And this is a real issue. So, Christianity is uh, b- born in the Middle East, like, of course, like Judaism. Uh, Buddhism, which rises in northern India, spreads westwards along these Sea Divergna towards the center of the world, towards what's now Iran, Iraq and Central Asia, and then up through what's Afghanistan, into China on a huge scale. So you find enormous statues of the Buddha in Luoyang and so on, but also cave complexes, monasteries all over China. You find Hinduism, again, fanning out across these networks. So I'm not giving you a new geographic perspective that is gonna tell you about cities that maybe you visited or look good in pictures I'm telling you about the fundamental way in which history actually really happened, right? How did language spread? Why do we, why do we call even Swedish an Indo-European language, right? We know it's, we're connected somehow to India. You know, Arianism, being Aryan, this is to do with, this is why the, the country changed its name from Persia to Iran, Iran, the land of these people who are pure and so on. You know, when you, when, when you get arrested in New York, has anybody been arrested in New York? Well, if you get, if I was arrested in New York, the police would be saying they're looking for a Caucasian male, cross between what do you say, Hugh Grant and Hans Rosling? Yeah, well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Caucasian. You know, this is a mountain range between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. These Cedar of are not peripheral, uh, and sometimes important because of the Mongols or. Timur or something like this or, you know, a nice city to visit. These are the fundamental... This is the the world's central nervous system. You can't understand the history of Europe without understanding the City of Egonauta, nor can you understand the history of these regions because Europe rose by taking control of these networks. You know, the reason why Europe rose is because it gained access to transatlantic trade and, and eventually to India, to Africa, to the trade networks of Asia. And that's, of course, what made... The Viking world. You know, we fo- we forget how even how here we are in Sweden connected to uh, to the centre of Asia.
0: Yeah, I, I, I uh, notice now you're running a bit very fast through time here. Should we slow try down? To slow down. No, no, slow Alexander down. We'll start great. from the no, not <laughs> necessarily a religion. I, I thought okay. you were speaking about religion because yeah. it, it's one of the light most powerful light motifs yeah. in your book. And it's also one of the most powerful themes in the world today and, uh, and a source of many conflicts, at least people think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you were, ta- you were talking about Christianity, and I, I thought we would, would try here to make our way through history uh, by a couple of scenes and like tableaux, okay. light motifs, if you're other. But there's a beautiful connection, for example, between uh, Shakespeare's, uh, the merchant of Venice, and the spread of Christianity that you that you were telling us about here earlier. Right. Well,
1: so, uh, Christi- after the death of and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, what happens is that the Christianity starts to take root. And like I said, it, it takes root in Asia quicker than it does in the Mediterranean. But in, in the Mediterranean, it's competing with um, Roman pagan authority and so on. And, and religion, like you said, Bjorn, it's, it's important today. It was important in the past. You know, even if you're convinced and you can prove that there's no God, you know the meaning of life. What happens when us when we die, or our loved ones when we die? You know, it's important. Uh, it's important to understand exactly what the teachings are of the uh, church fathers, or from the Quran, or whatever it is. It's, it's important to understand these things. And but the Christians who start to to spread out into the Roman Empire uh, become very heavily persecuted. And uh, Tertullian is one of the one of the great writers from the uh, late Roman period, who, it's very striking, his co- his, he writes a commentary about, what, about Christian persecution, and he says, more or less echoing a very famous play by Shakespeare called The Merchant of Venice, whose hero, Shylock, uh, Tertullian says, you know, how, can you, how can you attack us? We, do we not have two arms and two legs like you do? Just because we're Christian and we believe a different way, are we worthy to have our lives counted less valuable than yours? Uh, is it right that you should attack us with your with your with, with sticks and clubs and break our bones because it gives you the satisfaction to, can you not respect us as human beings and more or less as as uh, Shylock says in, in Shakespeare's words you know if you cut us do i not bleed if i cut me do i not bleed you know this this persecution and intolerance uh, is something which it's not just you find echoes across periods in history you know it's how one respects and deals with minorities mm-hmm it's a hugely important question and you know we can we can kid ourselves to think that somehow the problems of 2017 are unique you know there's march in on saturday in Yetabori or what's going on in catalonia uh, the weekend as well uh, what's happening in with brexit and uh, you know galicia and so on in uh, these ideas about identity are hugely important and how one treats how one builds a society that allows uh, freedoms tolerances and so on is is as we know it's not easy, but these are not new questions. These are things that were occupying the minds of scholars like Tertullian um, two thousand years ago. And what, what's interesting as a historian always is to try and find parallels to show that these these things morph. So something you see as with the Christians being persecuted, you then see the other way around of the Christians uh, persecuting Jews. In this case, in, in Venice, in the in the in the 1600s, and then
0: that the, one of the main sources of conflict in today's world, or at least in the Western world, is the relationship between Islam and Christianity. But it, uh, it hasn't always been so. I mean, Islam is a very powerful theme in your book as well. The, ra- the, the rise of, of Islam and, and that really, really changed the world
1: yeah well i think what you, what you need to do i I'm, I'm only because you i know you're such a good editor bjorn so i don't want to you're, i don't want to run ahead from myself well, please run ahead <laughs> run wherever you want i, I think it's best, best that um you know it's understanding how ideas spread it's fascinating right uh religion is one of these markers you can see and and what is it that allows success if you're I suppose you look at it that way what is it that allows Christianity to be successful and spread what is it that allows the ideas of Islam to spread and uh, you know we we see today in today's world religion as something highly divisive because of the way that it's used by people who have guns and people who are prepared to use acts of violence and claim that they're defending their god but by and large it's quite hard to convert people or win them over if you take if you take people to the top of a tower and and throw them off, or behead them, or dynamite buildings because you don't like how they've been constructed. And uh, generally, things that are successful don't work. You're not, you know, if if you're if you're if you're if you rape, kill, murder, use violence indiscriminately, or even discriminately, um, nothing nothing has ever been built that way that survives. Th- those realms, those worlds that tend to work, or that do work in history, have always been ones that have used quite a soft touch, uh, and have been sensitive to. Protecting and to looking after minorities, and I know that the, the you know the, the, those in Raqqa and Mosul won't think that this is what history is about. But you know the early followers of Muhammad were conspicuous by their attempts to try to um, well respect and also stay away from the communities that they that they um, they conquered by and large when they arrived. But it's the same with the Mongols um, later. Uh, there was a There was a tax deal if you became a Muslim, so it 's cheaper for you, or put it the other way, more expensive if you want to put your money where your mouth is with your beliefs but in the early fir- the first decades of Islam and the followers of Muhammad and his successors, the early caliphs they don 't just um, look after churches and help maintain them in some cases, they build churches in some cases they build synagogues. Uh, there's, there's a great deal of respect. The, the, one of the first caliphs arrives in Jerusalem and takes off, his, takes off his clothes, takes off his shoes so he can worship at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is where Jesus Christ was buried. You know, And the, this import, there is an importance in telling history as it actually was, so depoliticizing, stopping it being used as fake news where the triumph of this is what God is doing and God has obviously chosen us to be superior to you and then that, that opens up these persecutions and so on. But you know, one has to be very sensitive telling stories about or you know, telling the history of people's faith because one has to respect the fact that people believe in Christ, or believe that Muhammad is the messenger of God, uh, people believe that the, the Jewish traditions and how they might be fulfilled. You, you have to try to understand what people have thought, believed and wanted to to share and by and large, we are all curious we all have we all support different teams right we all support have different tastes for food, for music or whatever and i don't see anybody killing each other. I mean there's almost not a single musician piece of music or if I said I like Shutbullah and Bilar, no one would want to attack me. so why I should say, but also then when I go home, I face this way and I pray in that way, those motivations to try to fight are about something different you know uh, uh, they tend to be about power they tend to be about money, they tend to be about food, they tend to be about survival, and they tend to be about b- a sense of betrayal, of leaving your community and letting them down. But th- those, those things are, are much more fundamental, I think, than, um, than than people trying to say, this is what I believe and I'd like to share that with you. Mm-hmm.
0: You mentioned earlier here the march in Gothenburg this weekend, where a group of people, or well, at least some of them, I think, were celebrating the Vikings, the Vikings of, of Sweden, as True nationalist heroes and role models. Uh, in your book, the Vikings are rather described like the first globalists. How is that? Well, that's
1: what they are. I mean, that's they're they're amongst I know, they're, they're amongst the first. Glo- I mean, so I mean, it's a, it's. Um, I don't understand these kind of concepts of the past, of carto- you know, cartoon imagery of how people want to see the Vikings or the Crusades or any number of topics you want to pick. But it would seem to me that those who marched in... Yete- were any of you marching in Yetabori? You never know. Um, you know, could do with a few history lessons. Because Viking, the Vikings... Uh, you know, I know that, again, they have a reputation for thuggery, violence, and so on. But Viking society is incredibly well-structured, incredibly sophisticated, incredibly ordered. Uh, but the most important thing about the Vikings is the reason why Viking society became successful is that the Vikings were fantastic long-distance traders. So it's true, they did a bit of um, uh, sailing across the North Sea to go and sack Lindisfarne and so on. But the commodity they were after when they crossed the North Sea Britain. These days, we have lots of. Indi- oh, no, we don't have any industry. In t- <laughs> uh, the Vikings were looking when they when they came to places like Ireland and to uh, Britain, for a commodity that we have lots of in Europe. Because, um, in the Mediterranean, there's no, and, and in Europe, we have zero, almost zero gold, a little bit of silver, some bits of tin. We don't have anything that's really high value. And the Vikings were long-distance traders, and they were looking for commodities that they could trade. And where the Vikings made their money, and by the ambitious, smart, uh, I was going to say clever, that's a different word, but smart and ambitious, tough Vikings, they didn't head across the North Sea to Lindisfarne and Grimsby and all these places that have Viking and Scandinavian uh, connections. They went east they went to Starya Ladaga as a sort of staging post. They went down the Russian river systems, the Volga particularly, and they started to trade with Central Asia and with, with the Muslim world because this was a period after the death of Muhammad. There comes a, 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 the first proper global superpower, intercontinental superpower, where the Muslim world stretches from Cordoba in Spain, the whole way through North Africa and Egypt, right the way through Iran, Iraq to the Himalayas, and it 's incredibly wealthy there 's huge amounts of of cash swirling around this um, Islamic world and the Vikings know this they 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 discover or they find this out, and the big question is what how can they take advantage of it and The one commodity that we have in large quantities in europe people they, they try to sell um falcons and amber and um, nuts, you know I suppose a bit of demand for that posh dinner parties in those is some nuts maybe Um, but the one commodity we have lots of in in Europe is is women and children what the Vikings were doing in Dublin and we know this from the accounts written in Dublin we know this from the uh, from the structure of Dublin early city uh, is to rustle slaves it's to human traffic and the Vikings were following on from uh, cities that set up, uh, first of all, a slave trading centres like Dublin, like Utrecht, like Mainz, like Prague, like Marseille, trying to sell into this rich, cosmopolitan, metropolitan uh, world. You know, cities are what makes the world go round. Know, in cities you have very frequent exchange. You know, in Stockholm, the more people who live here, the more you go and buy your halon Bortar and your dill chips, and you, the more you go to the shops. If you live in the middle of small land and you're 20 miles away from a shop, then you can't exchange so frequently. You can still say hello to your neighbours every now and again, but cities are what matter. And urban life broadly doesn't really exist in Europe until the early Middle Ages. You know, Paris, London, these kind of cities have a population of about 15 20,000 at a time when Baghdad has a population of at least a million. Merv in Turkmenistan, a population of at least a million. Damascus, half a million at least, and so on. So this, this magnet drawing um, slaves and human trafficking, and, and of course the big slave trading center um, is, is Venice. And you know we, we, if we don't know this because we don't think it's important, it's not in our story uh, and how important it is, I'll give you... Cl- and, uh, none of you need to speak Italian, but when you say to somebody you meet in the street, ciao, that you're saying schiavo, I'm your slave. It's a sort of, as a joke. You know, my, my, my parents' generation in Austria, you'd quite often say, you'd meet each other, you'd say "servus." Mm. M- my generation, you know, mine, the generation, well, generation below, they just Snapchat each other. But, you know, th- we don't, th- that's not so common. But this concept of how embedded slavery is in the history of, of Europe is profoundly important, even to the point that the word Slav, you know, Polish, Bulgarian, Croatian, Russian and so on, Slav is the word where we get the word slave from. And we get it because these were the people who were allowed to be traded to the East, because the Pope didn't like Christians being traded, you know, a bit like the a bit like the English. And it's not it's not really cricket to be selling Christians. But the Slav, that's okay, through the accidents of their lack of evangelism. And the Vikings capitalise on this slave trade uh, on a vast scale. So here, if you go to the National Museum here in Stockholm, you see jade Buddhas, you see gifts brought back from from all over the heart of the world. Um, But above all, the the marker of why Viking society becomes so powerful uh, is because of the silver, particularly. Um, The precious metal, the silver, particularly, that's brought back from the centre of the world. The amount of Islamic silver minted in shash, it's now Tashkent or Samarkand or Baghdad, it is, it is on a scale that is properly properly mind-blowing. Mm. And you find these entry points, like in Gotland particularly, but you find the amount of, of silver that is essentially like a shot of adrenaline into the economy of Scandinavia, of course, but the economy of Europe uh, as a result. And uh, eventually the, the the vikings who are heading east we know them from their runestones they talk about Serkland and how you know ingvar died and sorry he's not coming back um, eventually the trading posts that that are that are uh, you're needed to build these connections so the viking in Wegener are the connections that are built down these river systems that connect into the networks across um, crisscrossing across Asia, the Scyldings are east, e- north-south, east-west, but north-south to Scandinavia too. Eventually, these fortified forts, like Saria Ladaga, uh, become places like Novgorod, New Town, mm-hmm. uh, Smolensk, Chernigov, Kiev, and the Vikings, instead of travelling and, and taking this long distance, start to telegraph their goods and their profits northwards until eventually they discover, you know, like all. Oh urban societies do there's more money to be made in financial services and uh, there's more money to be made in you know running your you know renting out your boatmen and your your stores to uh, to local merchants, and that starts to break down the chain of connections, bringing things back to the motherland. There's enough going on in Kiev itself for people to trade backwards and forwards. And so Scandinavia is directly, and the Vikings are absolutely connected to the Vegana, to the Islamic world, to the connections with China, to Damascus, to Mosul, and I'm going to guess that our friends in Yetabora don't probably know that.
0: No, they didn't. Um. I, uh, unfortunately, or f- perhaps fortunately, and they're not here to learn either. So. No,
1: well, you know, but hi- history is history. It, gets, is, is, it can be used as a, as a political tool. Yeah. And um,
0: I, I got to ask, did you read uh, the Long Ships by Franski Bengtsson? No. Oh, you I didn't. Should. Oh, you should definitely. There's a, there's a very. It's a Swedish classic novel about the Vikings. Okay. And um, every, everyone read it. How many read the uh, Orm in here? Oh, Röda Orm, yes, Well, okay. this is a Swedish classic. Yeah. Okay. So you should definitely read it because I, I think that's a good English translation as well. Yeah, okay, that's, that's yeah, yeah, you could yeah. you yeah. should. Cuz yeah. this is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And this this is a parenthesis. And,
1: and fiction if, but fiction is terrific. I mean, yes. if I fell in love with with Russia through reading Turgenev, through reading Chekhov, through yeah. reading Pushkin, you know, fiction opens up. the Yeah. History, wi- wi- yeah. Wi-
0: which brings us actually to the next phase here in history. Um you guys at the publishing house must buy the uh, urm to Peter before he goes back here. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't like being caught out like that. I th- I'd like to think I've read everything. But okay. yeah. Well, the obviously <laughs> here. Um, <laughs> I will be You, it, you mentioned fiction, and yes. there's there's one of the very very fine things in your book is the re- m- the revelation you get of the r- relationship sometimes t- between art. History of the arts and history of literature and real history, let's call it like that. I mean, another group that, that has a pretty lousy reputation in history are the Mongols. Mm. But when you're reading Peter's book, you get uh, a revelation of the, r- the connection between the Mongols and the color blue in the Renaissance painting mm. of Fra Angelico. Could yes. you just very briefly co- <laughs> describe this connection? Uh,
1: yeah, well, you've, got, you've got to promise to buy the book though, right? Because I, I can't take out the best. Uh, um, well, so one of the interesting things about, about Europe, it always uh, the first question for any of, any of you students, by the way, no one here to you, anybody under the age of 21? <laughs> Is there somebody under the age of 21? I, prom- I would buy anybody under the age of 21 a book. Are you under the age of 21? No. Uh, what a shame! Okay, so w- the, the trick, you know, the, the best tip is for, for young budding historians: is always the questions about timing. Why? Why now? Right? So why does the Renaissance get going? You know, why? Why does suddenly you find uh Frangelico in and this wonderful art? And um, and part of the, the glory of Frangelico's art is the, the colours, and uh, the three primary things that are most exciting about he and and the others, but the other uh, Piero della Francesca and so on, are well, first gold that's used in the art, which none of it comes from Europe. So, you know, where does that come from? Second, the, the pinky purple that comes from verdigris or from rhubarb, again, they don't come from Europe. And then this magnificent, uh, this magnificent indigo blue that comes from lapis from Central Asia. So these glories of European art, all made with materials that come from, from the East. And um, you know, then you start to think, well, how does that happen? And you start to think, just like the Vikings made their, made their money, built their state, Enriched their leaders, uh, you know, made their talks for their, you know, the, the amazing jewellery for their, uh, for their wives, their slaves, and so on. Um, uh, you then think, okay, well, Venice and Genoa and Pisa and Florence and Siena and Sicily, uh, all grew from connecting into these networks too, from buying and selling and trading. Uh, in the case of Venice, for example, uh, they didn't really care so much about the Crusades, whether those went well or not. They were happy to deal with anyone, because you know, it's no different in today's world. You know, money talks. You know, so tell Boforsh, or tell uh, Boeing or Lockheed not to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia, and they won't do it, They'll, of course we'll sell. That's just how it works, money always talks. And um, it's, it's, it's c'est la vie, you, know, you can be moral about it, you can see what the consequences are in the case of places like Saudi Arabia. The more you sell weapons, the more you build up a military structure in that state, the more you create hierarchy because states that have big militaries promote their officers right to the top, so you build fragility for the likelihood of state failure or state coup. Uh, and this is what happens. And then once you've got lots of kit that you pay for, you might as well use it against the Houthis, for example, in Saudi's case. We might as well use it in for Iran, Iraq, and the more armed people get, there's a structure that follows. Um, Through this sort of process, and Venice, Genoa, Pisa, and so on—the rest of it—all are part of that continuum of plugging into these trade trade networks in the East. As far as the Mongols go, in part of the story, well, again, why now? Why why do the Mongols succeed? And you start reading the the histories of the Mongols and it's all about murder and Genghis Khan and he isn't like one in two people in the world somehow descended from Genghis Khan and he must have had sex with everybody to do that and you know, we, and we don't really think about how it happened. We think the Mongols arrived, they, they destroyed everything, everyone, they blew up the whole world and then they sort of disappeared. <coughs> but that's not the story. That's not actually true. That's not reality. What, what the amazing thing about the Mongols is from about 1200, 1206, between, in the space of 15 years, the Mongols are able to get from Mongolia and, Chi- and Eastern China right the way through to Kiev and 20 years later, they're in Central Europe. And the big question, of course, is why then? What happens? How are they able to do that? Uh, how does that fit with the story of murdering millions and millions of people? Because y- there are so p- you know, not everybody dies under the Mongols. What, what actually happens is that they totally devastate a couple of cities, to make examples of them. And Nishapur, the order is given in Nishapur that no man, woman, child, or four-legged animal should be left alive. I told that to my children. They said, the poor dogs. And I went, no, not the poor dogs. The poor people. (laughs) And my children went, the poor dogs. Okay, so Nishapur was destroyed. And Merv in Turkmenistan, uh, uh, in 1221, Merv had a population. It was the biggest inhabited city in the world. That's where scholars, artisans, traders, networks, everything connected through Merv, it was completely flattened. And what the Mongols did was they, they used these to then unlock everything else. They uh, arrived at cities and said, right, you can either suffer the same fate as Nishapur or you or as, as Merv, or you can surrender. And most of the populations said, okay, well, what are the, tell, us, tell us, give us a bit more information so we can make a good decision. And they say, well, look, option one is you end up like Nishapur and Merv. Or option two is you open the gates and you acclaim uh, the great Khan as your supreme overlord. And, you know, we'll move on. And they always had two questions, which was, number one, can we worship the same way and the same God? And the, Mongol, the Mongols would say, do you know what, we're really not that motivated, but you do whatever you like. And not only can you do whatever you like, I'm pretty sure that Genghis Khan had like a Jewish tutor or a friend of his, best friend, I think, or his brother-in-law or something was Muslim. He loved Buddhist by the way. And they gave this kind of very clever social democrat answer, which is, you know, everyone's happy. You know, Tony Blair, it's fine. We're all going to be okay. Uh, Tony Blair and the Mongols okay there you go Uh, and then the other question which is of course money talks is they would these these places would say do we pay What, what kind of tribute are we talking about what kind of punishment and the Mongols said we're not really interested in in punishing you on the contrary we'll we'll just collect the same tax that you paid before and in some cases we'll lower that tax hurdle and the Mongols were I wrote about it in the Evening Standard they are what we would today call fiscal conservatives so the Mongols they built this huge empire very quickly. A couple of, there, for sure, there are a couple of bloody incidents on the way. Merv, they stacked up people's skulls so they could, on towers so they could be seen from a long way away. So don't get me wrong, the Mongols weren't uh, entirely uh, progressive and you know, touchy-feely. But this world, the reason why they were able to do it so fast was that they could use those brutal uh, examples plus a very soft touch to incorporate everybody into one big unit and then were very, very soft in their ability to break down identities. So in the Mongol world, they're acutely aware of the problem about being Spanish or Catalan or Galician or Basque. So there were sort of some basic ground rules of what it meant to be um, Mongol or part of the, part of the, the, the great Khan's uh, inner circle. And this highly sophisticated world was built up that lasted for centuries. So it's not some flash in the pan. Eventually, the Mongols, their descendants, move into India under Babur, and they we, they then get called the Mergles in sort of quite clever rebranding. Those who work in branding, so when we think, oh Mergle, oh, lovely <laughs> jewellery and the way they dress, and oh these buildings, oh, are charming. And have you been to northern India? And, and it's lovely to escape in the winter. But those buildings, like uh, in 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 Jaipur, in Jodhpur, in in Udaipur, in Taj, you know the Taj Mahal, they're all built in Humayun's tomb in classic Central Asian style because you you bring ideas with you, you bring literary forms. The court language is Persian, brought from the Mongols. What what the big mistake, if I could go back in time, uh, and I'm not just saying it to make you buy my book. What the Mongols didn't do is they didn't make sure that they had historians writing about them. And, and, and that's, I mean that properly. If you don't pay uh, attention to your record of how you look in the past, you either disappear or it distorts. So in due course, it's the Persian writers who start to say, oh, the Mongols, they're incredibly bloodthirsty, they rape, they pillage, they're not at all like us. We play chess and have rose-scented petal water uh, to offer our guests, and you know, we're, we're no, nothing like these fools on horses. Um, but, but there is a problem about trying to work out what the reality is in the absence of sources that are highly coloured or one-sided. And, and, and the Mongols suffer in that case in the same way that the Ottomans, the, same way that the Byzantines, these architects of vast realms that are ultra-stable, ultra-successful, but all of them have a terrible reputation because... They didn't do enough to pres- burnish their own image, and then the, the the winds of history swept over them and pushed them into the sidelines.
0: Well, they d- they did they did bring one thing to Europe that wasn't so nice, though, the plague. But that came eventually came to bring about the color yes. blue in Fra yes. painting. Yes,
1: yeah. Well, that's so. So that so it's so along these these networks, it's not just trade, right? We can we can sort of over over push. Exchange. You know, people aren't just driven by money. In fact, you know, money does talk, but so does faith, so does religion, so does curiosity, so does so does mother nature. You know, so you can trace. I learned a lot about hazelnuts, I didn't put a single sentence. The problem, the terrible thing about a book like this, is that I would love it to be 2,000 pages long. Huge amount of work I did on hazelnuts. for About three weeks. About because because hazelnut shells survive, so you can see where they're being used. You know, you can see how diets are changing, and then there's no way it could fit in. But amongst the things that are spread by people, ideas, fashion, food tastes, um, so on and so forth, uh, animals. Uh, but so too is pathogens. You know, when we when we fly and someone on the plane sitting in front of you starts coughing, you know, we all pull our jacket over our nose as though that might help. Uh, but in in the in the 1300s, uh, plague sweeps across, following exactly these these connection routes. Eventually reaches um, Kaffa on the Black Sea, which the Mongols are besieging. Mongol Mongol soldiers start to die with sort of black pustules in their uh, in their in their around their necks, around their lymph glands, and the Mongols uh, catapult them into the fort. It's a essentially a use of biological warfare. They don't quite know that's what's going on. But then Genoese who are inside the port, uh, their ships start to bring it back with them, and uh, and and the Black Death. Decimates uh, Europe and decimates Asia, um, but the, the the devastation in Europe probably we sort of you know are not not entirely sure, but somewhere between twenty five and um, thirty percent of of the population of Europe dies, and it's an amazing thing actually. All of us in this room, all of our ancestors survived, right? Or they'd had children who survived before they died. You know, it's amazing when we try to think about that. We're all plague survivors, and although the plague destroyed um, the population, I mean, I can't even bear thinking about it. I mean, it's literally, you divide the room in more or less, who who dies and who doesn't. But it does lots of very strange things as a result. So, although we should be, you no know, one should wish plague to happen, first of all, it made the population, a stroke, much healthier. Mm. Um, because those who are weak died, uh, and so on, and there's a genetic structure to all of that. Second, it, it reduced the gap between rich and poor. Mm. Because um, when you are uh, you know, living in central Stockholm and you've got, you know, lots of houses that you're renting out, if suddenly a third of the population is gone, uh, you've got empty space and it's better to get some income than none. So rents fall. And uh, that may be a good thing, may be a bad thing, but the, but that means that the, the top comes down. But it also means that those at the bottom have greater um, spending power because their money can go further and also because their skills are in demand to do, you know, the saddling horses, to make arrows, to, you know, to... to uh, to do all the kind of the, the lower grade, lower paid jobs, their ability to charge more for those goes up. So you suddenly it's a, a society that is much narrow in the hierarchy it creates, and also it's one that lives for for today. You know the the spending patterns change. You can see how people are no longer saving up for generations to pass on to the estates of their children, whatever. It's like, well, if we're going to die, we might as well have fun doing it. And that that creates a new age in like Europe. The first
0: consumer society.
1: I'm not sure about... I mean, in, in Europe's context... In Europe, yes. In Europe's context. Europe's context um, maybe. I mean, I think, you know, the Romans were pretty good. You know, you read, you yeah, read the Satyricon of Petronius, and Satyricon is basically about a man who is today a kind of equivalent of a hedge fund manager or one of those guys who thinks of a digital idea and sells it six months later for 200 million euros and then sits in Stockholm going, right, let's have dinner and I want to have the best you know, caviar from, uh, from Iran, I want the best vodka from here, I want, uh, just give me everything. So the Romans knew how to, how to do that, that too and the Romans, were, they thought it was people who made money were highly vulgar, just like we would all, th- is anybody here a hedge fund manager? Who'd like to buy us all caviar and celebrate <laughs> after 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 dinner? Okay, so you know, if there, but if there was one sitting next door with his Ferrari and then was going to the latest nightclub and saying, "I'll tell, buy one of those ten thousand bottles of champagne," we would all believe me. We would all think that was awfully vulgar unless he asked us in to share it with him. In which case, you know, maybe more fun. But so, consumer. So we became a consumer. You know, that was a, a, a key point in in changing spending patterns and also I, also expanding horizons. You know, when you are. When you experience real suffering, like in the First World War and after the First World War, with revolution in Russia, with influenza pandemic, with millions dead and fighting between 1914 and 1918, Europe in the 20s has the same vibrancy of energy. And of course, the good bits of that is it creates an incredibly the 1920s is the most exciting moment in the last hundred years for creative in, the, in visual arts and music and poetry across the world. Um, that's a small statements to make, but that's what I think, that's what I think is the most exciting thing. Of course, it then paves the way for this flat networks to produce hierarchies with Stalin, with Hitler, with you know, uh, communism in China that, 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 that take over these, these, these periods. But you find similar kinds of moments in the past where extreme suffering, extreme hardship leads to this, let's live like there's no tomorrow, let's galvanize, and that creates an energy of itself. Uh, that, you know, produced the, eventually the Wall Street crash, the rise of Hitler, all that you know, starvation in the Ukraine, <laughs> a terrible suffering like man has never seen outside of warfare. And so there are, there are, but these rhythms of how you can see the world changing and reacting, they're fa- absolutely fascinating. So the Black Death here came from Central Asia, followed these networks, destroyed Europe. But ironically, was actually, I write in the book, it, in, in a funny way, it's the making of Europe. Yeah. So let's not hope we, let's hope we don't have another one. Of the, I mean, it's a matter of time, of course. And then the of Europe gets in, us in, it then. in
0: its turn ret- results in Spain invading America, and which in its turn destroying the Maya, the Maya kingdom, yeah, which well, which, yeah. I, which in its turn leads to the creation of of the Taj Mahal in India. Right. How is right. that? Right. How can that be?
1: Well, so if you conceptualise uh, the, the world before 1492, the Americas have a very important and exciting history of their own. But despite what you wonderful Vikings did with Newfoundland, you know, it's a very small, light touch. Uh, the Americas sit outside the global trading networks. So the bits that really matter are you know, Europe, North Africa, particularly because the sub-Saharan Africa... The Sahara is very difficult to get past. It's sort of disconnected from... Th- there is connection between Ghana and gold and so on coming north. But we're really thinking of, of Europe, uh, North Africa, Egypt, Ethiopia down in the south, the Gulf right the way through to Indonesia. Um, the the place that is at the single worst location in all of that, maybe Scandinavia you can make a case for it, but it's it's well after the Vikings, you know, because that's why, you know, Sweden wasn't a rich country after that, until Sweden expands through Poland and Russia and you know, have that part of Sweden's chapter of history. But Spain and Portugal are in the absolutely the worst parts of all, because they are maritime powers and yet their ships can't compete with even well not even with Genova, forget about forget about Pisa, forget about uh, Venice, which have these networks that have been built. The Portuguese they find a way eventually to get past the Saharan coast of Africa and they start well guess what shipping slaves you know human, human trafficking is a fundamental part of our human experience but Columbus is obsessed about the fact that um he can find a way across the Atlantic and he he did so with three ships which is nothing you know that's like launching a you know a small open-top Saab towards Mars. You know, I mean, how the chances of that of su- succeeding, zero. But Columbus is convinced that what lies across the Atlantic. He's not an explorer, actually. He's not trying to see what's there. He's not trying to see if the world is flat. He's not trying to, you know, s- uh, win anybody's favor. He's trying to find connections to India and China. So he takes with him interpreters who can speak Arabic and Chaldean, and people who thinks will be able to communicate with the Mongols, with the Chinese. Um, he takes with him um, letters of introduction to the great Khan so he can st- open up trade. And he's convinced that the effect on Spain will be so quick and so profound that it will allow Spain to become a huge European power. And in fact, what he finds, when he comes back and says, I have found China, but better. There were not anybody Chinese there, but definitely I found gold and this and that, and whatever, which is all nonsense. And his men uh, write to the, king and, uh, to, to the king of Aragon and Castile and they say he's a liar. But as it so happens, the second, third, fourth trips he makes and then those who follow, like uh, Vespucci and so on, they find, first of all, they find the pearl beds of northern Venezuela, which it's not, not my term, it's a, another scholar, um, Halikovsky-Smith, who comes up with saying it's the first ecocide in human history where... Um, Billions of pearls are lifted from the oyster beds over the course of 20 or 30 years. And then eventually the engagement with the discovery of the Aztec world in Central America and the Inca in South America, which are highly structured, also violent societies, but they are no match for the systematized violence of the Europeans. Because the one thing we do really well here, apart from selling and buying slaves, uh, the one thing we're really good at in Europe is killing each other. That is our signature in history. There was not a single decade from 1350 to 1950 that didn't involve a major war. You know, Vikings' success was based on their ability to convince people, like the mafia, or like, you know, these days the Russians, the Kosovo, that it's in your interest to do business with them, right? The, the Muslim sources, the Arabic sources that write about the Vikings are, you know, these men are heavily tattooed, they're tall like willows, you know, they look and sound like gang members, That you, they give you a... Option to decide whether you like to trade with them, and if you don't, they kill you. So, um, but this is what happens: this European technology, these advances of military technology, means that when Europe comes into contact with the Americas, even societies like the Aztec that are you know human sacrifices, they're not pussycats waiting to be stroked. But they, but they, but the Europeans are able to completely dismantle these empires, and they dismantle them, and they take away um, silver, emeralds, gold, jewels, and all of that cash flows back towards the Iberian Peninsula, towards, um, particularly towards what becomes Spain. And the Spanish, blessed with all this cash, they do what all lottery... Has anybody here a lottery winner? Did anybody win the lottery? What happens to all lottery winners, as everybody knows, somehow they spend all that money on pointless helicopters, fast cars, and then 20 years later or 10 years later, they've got nothing left. So the Spanish, in the space of 150 years, they managed to go bankrupt four times. But they fight every single war they can. They they pour money into the Escorial, this enormous palace in Madrid. But the money that comes into the European economy is that suddenly enriches everybody in Europe. Mm. is is then recycled and spent on the stuff that everybody wants. And the stuff everybody wants are textiles and fabrics, silks, but you know other textiles and fabrics too. Um, spices, because if you're rich, you know you want to have the best in life. Uh, ceramics, you know, the, the the Chinese chinese ware that that starts to eventually come into into europe and this huge amount of all this wall of cash not just coming through europe eventually the spanish found a city of manila in the philippines to clear cash from the pacific across the pacific to reach the markets quicker this wall of cash suddenly allows local leaders in in china but in india to have astronomical wealth at their disposal to the point that well in the in the in the fifteen hundreds one man when his wife dies early is able to build a mausoleum uh to to her memory uh one of the most famous in the world, the Taj Mahal you know that 's what you can afford to do if you 're suddenly totally completely minted and this This is all paid for the the riches of India paid for from the cash taken away from well what they used to be called the Indians of South America. These connections are so fascinating, but it's always about the Siedenwegener, it's always about the roots and the connections across linking us all together.
0: So you see, this, the, the book is full of these kind of connections that are really astonishing when you w- once you get to see them. Another one is th- that struck me as especially interesting is the relationship between the, the play, the Chekhov play, the Cherry Orchard and, yeah. and the First World War. How, how are those things connected?
1: Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, well, so I, uh, it's, uh, I love Chekhov. I love the cherry orchard. So I, I need to stop myself giving too long an answer. But, um, you know, oh. Russia, Russia, after 1812, uh, you know, Napoleon sets fire to Moscow and then starts to push back um, and come back towards Europe. And then that's game over for, for the French Empire. But from 1812, for the next 100 years, the Russian Empire... Grows by an average of, of 55 square miles per day for 100 years, and that expansion across into Central Asia, its southern lip towards Iran, uh, eventually out towards China. You know, we forget we forget our geography. You know, um, Eastern Russia is one and a half thousand miles east of Beijing. You know, it's huge. The scale of Russia, the size of it, and as Russia goes through these kind of uh, this I suppose puberty, you know, there's growing pains sort of suddenly going from being, you know, a nice society in St. Petersburg where, you know, people know how to curtsy and they speak French to each other, uh, to being something that is much more ambitious, much more global, much more experimental in terms of trying out new things. So, you know, so it's Russian composers who start to bring in um, Asiatic music themes into. into into music, you know, Rimsky, Korsakov, Borodin and so on. It's the Russians who start to try and engage with what does it mean to be, you know, the Russians have had a a frontier with the Islamic world for one and a half thousand years, you know, that's, they have a better sense of how to deal with these kinds of neighbors than we do here in in Europe. Uh, But Russia, this process of change, of dynamism, of of an empire that is about to catch fire, you know, the gallop towards, before 1914, it's all about, this is going to be the Russian century, the 20th century. You know, when when holweg Hollweg, the German Chancellor, is sitting outside his his uh, summer house in 19, in the summer of 1914, just as the war is about to start, he says, "Whatever happens with the war, this is going to be the age of Russia." And the the beauty, the tragedy, you know, the two are very closely linked in Russia, are best expressed by the cherry orchard uh, of Chekhov, for me anyway, written around about 1900, where. Suddenly, Russia is changing. You know, it's no longer good enough to be aristocratic and useless and have a big estate, who, which had your slaves working for you. Slavery is abolished in Russia before it's abolished in, in America. Uh, but the story is about three sisters who find it impossible to um, find impossible to adapt, and you know they want to live in the past. I, th- I think personally, a bit like we are living today in Europe. Okay, where this changing world around us, we're trying to either pretend it's not happening or we completely blank out what's, what's going on around us. But Lapakin, who is, used to be the, the, his father was a slave, or serf, not a slave, a serf, belonging to this family, has become a successful entrepreneur. And his view is that the world is his oyster. You know, he can, he can think about social mobility. He can think about his investments. He can think about this new Russia that's opening up. It's, it's yeah. limitless, the opportunities. And that story is in itself... Hugely beautiful about transition in Russia. It, it's particularly poignant because, well, that's not what happens to Russia. That process towards liberalism, liberalization, opening up the tomorrow that's about to dawn, that's going to bring glory is swallowed up by war, it's swallowed up by revolution, by, you know, so on and so forth. And it's been always, ever thus, you can say, with the story of Russia. But The Cherry Orchard is a wonderful, like this, like fiction, like I said, it's a, it can provide a wonderful prism to see this kind of change and see the resistance to the fact that, you know, not everyone is a winner in society. If you don't adapt, if you don't respond, if you can't see what's going on in the world, you know, you, you, you know, by the time you, like like in Titanic, by the time you see the iceberg, it's already too late. Mm.
0: But then the, the the rise of the Russian middle class, so to speak, yeah. gives gives strength to the conf- geographical conflict with, with England. In along yes. The silk well, I roads. mean, uh,
1: what's yeah. amazing is when you read through the when you read through. Has anybody been through the uh, archives of the pre First World War cabinet meeting minutes? Okay. Well, all of them in, in London. They don't mention Germany, right? It's it's all about Russia. It's all about how the British have been obsessed from the 1840s onwards about that Russian expansion into Central Asia, putting pressure on Iran, which is not not part of the British Empire, but it's a hugely important strategic partner. And the Russians start to compete for attention with the, with the Shah, but above all on India, the kind of jewel in the crown, India, now Pakistan, South Asia. And the Russians get closer and closer and closer through military conquest and by mopping up all these different emirates to the point that the British start to say our defences has been reduced to the thinness of a wafer they say, the British can't afford to reinforce. There are rumors swirling around about how um, Russia are about to take over India, and in the build up to the First World War, it's all about trying to second guess what the Russians are are trying to do. The British engineer it deliberately to get the Russian center of attention on Germany. One of the reasons why the British make a deal with the the Russians is to divert attention away from India, and as the Foreign Secretary says, to get them on to to looking and be worried about Germany. So the, the, the Germans get put in a little jar like a wasp and shaken around so that they're all ultra, ultra cagey and edgy. And that process of what is going on uh, on the eve of the First World War, it's all dominated by the setting of the Silk Roads and of, and of what's happening in Asia. One, one British ambassador from St. Petersburg cables back in and says, if the British do not stand by Russia now when they declare war on, on the Germans, our empire is lost. Uh, the British ambassador in Constantinople writes the same thing. Says we must stand next to Russia, otherwise that's it. That's game over for Britain. And so Britain goes into the war to defend Belgium and so on. Or this, and, and it's important because today in today's world, and Michael, you know, we're everyone worrying about Brexit, saying, oh, Britain's always trying to stop Germany being controlling in Europe and France and Germany, and it's all about German control over Europe. They didn't care about any of that. That's just how the story became afterwards, after 1918, blaming the Germans for. Starting the war, which they did, of course. But the context for all of that was about something happening deep in the heart of Asia, and, and it's important to be open-minded how we how we how we look through the history. You've got to follow the evidence rather than the
0: the idées reçues, you know, the kind of the accepted version of how things have been. I think we have to round up here uh, by touching on two subjects that have been very important the last twenty, thirty years. Along the Silk Roads.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to two subjects. I want to know what's happened to Swedish tennis since I was a boy. Would <laughs> <laughs> there be something like that? Okay, two subjects on the Silk Roads, yeah.
0: Oil and nuclear power. Okay. Yeah. Uh, w- how are those related okay, so so to, um, to the Silk Roads?
1: So, I, by the way, I've hardly spoken about anything in my book. You really haven't had the, b- the greatest hits. Uh, but each, each chapter is arranged because our, our, what we want, and what we need, or what we think we need, it changes over time. So e- each chapter has a sort of theme, sometimes it's an idea, or abstract faith, uh, sometimes it's a commodity, like uh, gold or fur. Uh, but in the 20th century, and in a way the story of the 20th century, outside the First World War, and well in fact connected to the First World War, is about control over oil. Um, when oil is found in, um, in Iran, or Persia, it is in 1907, uh, this changes fundamentally the story of, of, of Europe. Uh, It's discovered by a British prospector, um, Sir William Knox Darcy, and on the eve of the First World War, the British government buy a controlling stake in this business. Um, It's called uh, Anglo-Persian Oil Company. Um, It's a secret stake so that, that no one knows that the British government own the oil of Iran. And it's neg- it has been negotiated in a terrible way by the, sh- by the Shah. No one believed there was oil that was there. So the British end up with a concession for 70 years or so to take all of the money they want out of the ground in, in Iran. And already in the First World War, the British, again, the cabinet minutes, you haven't read this because you haven't been through the minutes like I have, but they start to talk about the oil of Iran and above all of Mesopotamia as a first-class war aim. You know, there's a huge, important British military intervention in the Middle East that we don't really think about. It carries on until 1920, we don't think too much about that. At the end of the First World War, that map, part of the reason we have so many problems today in Syria, Kurdistan, Turkey, Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, Saudi, is this map was all carved up to suit b- British and French, but particularly British ideas about where, um, where how to best exploit that oil and to fight for control and influence uh, of oil resources has been a fundamental theme ever since. So, in 1953, the, um, uh, the British intelligence services approached the United States, approached the CIA, to topple a democratically elected leader, Mohammad Mossadegh, who's been nation- wanted to nationalize, and has tried to nationalize the oil industry, saying it's absurd that all this money that comes into, uh, that comes out of the Persian soil, the Iranian soil, doesn't help a single Iranian citizen. And this is the time when. You know, capitalism has a dirty, dirty name. You know, th- the oil prospectus, the Agro Petroleum, by the way, becomes the company that's today known as BP. So, I mean, it's a monster. Uh, so little money's put into um, Abadan, into infrastructure in Iran, that in one city in Abadan, uh, there's only one street that has electricity in it. This is the biggest refinery in the world. Um, no children educated, you know, the prospect disastrous. So it's obvious that nationalists will take... Uh, control of this, but and then and then the prime minister is deposed, and that process of um, misguided intervention to try to support to pick sides and to try to back despots to try to back winners and whatever in in Middle Eastern society, you know that led to the installation of the king the the, the Saud dynasty in Saudi Arabia uh, that created uh, the context for the Ayatollah Khomeini to to say it's wrong that the Shah is. Um, in this, you know, corrupt Shah who didn't spend his money going downwards because we couldn't, as well as supporting the Shah and and telling him he didn't need to worry about democratic reforms behind the scenes, we said it'd be too risky and you know just enjoy going out with young girls and reading French novels, which is what he loved doing. C- French crime novels were his favourite. We couldn't get in, we couldn't get quickly enough to sell the Iranians weapons. So in in 1965, more or less, about 200 million dollars of weapons are sold to Iran. Uh, ten years later. It's $8.5 billion. We then send clever investment bankers who say, your oil's not going to last forever, so you should spend that money on safe new energy sources. So Henry Kissinger and Dick Cheney uh, sell and broker the deal of selling nuclear technology to Iran, which is the basis of Iran's current nuclear program, by the way. Mm. So from an Iranian point of view, how one minute we can have it, and the next minute we can't, uh, you know and the, the, the Americans they do the same thing they sell military and nuclear technology into to Pakistan, but they remove key moments key parts of the code which the Pakistani scientists crack within days and say we don 't know what we find more offensive the fact that the Americans removed the code or that they thought that we wouldn 't be able to crack it but this double edged sword of how we have misplayed the Middle East to try to influence the oil to try to buy the oil, but then sell back stuff that will help our industries and so on. You know, it's it's no surprise that in large parts of Asia, the reputation of the West is completely discredited, totally discredited, because, you know, we're seen as people who, um, even when we try to get it right, like in Iraq in 2003, or Afghanistan, huge cost, you know, huge loss of lives, you know, bravery of the men and women who are sent out there to do what the politicians told them. It's been a total catastrophe total disaster. Uh, we picked the wrong sides. We 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 had no results that were worth talking about. We've made things much, much worse. We're good at breaking stuff, not very good at fixing stuff. You know, we have no capacity to know how to build a state. And, and the only time that we really been good at that in Europe um, was in 1945 in Germany, where in 1945, 18 million Germans were homeless. 18 million. And the decision was made, how deep down do you cut out the head Nazi's to allow people to know how to a function, a, a state functions, to leave them in place. And it was a dice with the devil, you know, because having people who have been part of the old regime, of course, is hugely traumatic. And it ended up with the East and Western Germans run by former SS officers, or many of them. And and in, in 2003, the Americans arrived with Tony Blair with the new, a new religion called democracy, where we said, the good news, we're going to liberate you, and then you can all pick what you want, and then we'll leave. You know, we got the whole thing completely wrong. And, but that's been a process not of getting it wrong in the last 15 years, but a century of almost, you, you can't get it wrong that many times on purpose. But it's what happens if you don't understand history. It's what happens if you don't learn from the past. It's, it also happens if you don't connect that, well, Syria, Iran, Saudi, Pakistan, Afghanistan, China, India. These are all parts of a jigsaw that are connected. You know, you can't just zero in and send your specialists to one country and deliver what you think your medicine will be and fix things and build up your friendships. It's about a much wider picture. And as I travel around a lot in these countries, well, first, I'm, I'm normally the only Westerner that I ever see there. You know, there's the West are just not involved. You know, I was at a recently at a, at a conference where you know, there's no reason to bring people in from outside And when they do come from Sweden, whatever, whatever, they tend to, I shouldn't say Sweden, because that sounds like I'm picking on someone. But when Westerners do arrive, they can't get off the plane quickly enough and say, this is how you should run your country. And how we look from other parts of the world, you know, we're not so pretty as, as as we think our own reflection is in the mirror. You know, we can look at the Duomo in, in Firenze, your beautiful city in Gamla Stan. You can look at all the wonderful achievements we have. But, you know, Europe has also the negative copy, the, the things on the negative side, you know, about intolerance, of persecution, of warfare, instability, you know. And I can tell you just this weekend, talking to people uh, in these parts of the world, you know, the only question they say is, why is Europe so unstable? Why are people marching? They didn't ask about Jettebori. I didn't mention it. Bad PR for Sweden. But why, why in, in Catalonia are they behaving like this? Why do the Scots want to be independent? Why do people in Northern Ireland blow themselves up? Or, blow, well, they didn't blow themselves up. Why do they blow up other people? they killed many more of the IRA than Islamic fundamentalists have done. Uh, why, why does Scotland want to be independent? Why does Beppe Gile on the Five Star Movement, what is it about Europe that is so deeply unstable? Why are you so quick to, like a bad sheriff in the Wild West, shoot first and ask questions second? Why do you not want to try to engage with who we are and there is you know there's a legacy story with that so you know I'm I'm a humble professor you know I'm a, just an academic the best I can do my contribution is to try to explain the world how I see it it's not a controversial book it's a I think very balanced don't tell me if I'm wrong uh, but you know it's it's trying to say this is this is how stuff looks if you look if you start with the evidence rather than your fairy stories about aren't knights on shining arm in the crusades aren't those charming because that's what the guys who kill for then the name of their god today in Raqqa are doing where they get martyrdom where they get freedom where they get all the goods that the crusaders got but trying to understand the world in a much more in a much more through much more context is 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 all I is all I can do and I suppose what's amazing and what's a real honor to be here with all of you tonight and honor that my book's published in in Swedish you know I never thought that would happen, but, the, but to see that there are different perspectives that are incredibly important at a time of profound global change in the
0: 21st century. Peter Frankopan, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you. Thanks,